this episode of the EP Edit Podcast, we're speaking with Amber Seiler about implementing a telehealth program for EP patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. Amber is a nurse practitioner and the Arrhythmia Services Program Coordinator in Greensboro, North Carolina at Cone Health. Well, thanks so much for speaking with me today, Amber. Tell me a little bit about making the switch to telemedicine. Had your practice used telemedicine before? Yeah, it's a really great question, and we hadn't because of all the regulatory requirements that were wrapped into telemedicine and virtual healthcare pre-COVID. And so making this switch was a really fast pivot for us. It was a process that historically would have taken months or even years to put all of these processes in place with standard work and making sure that everybody was on board. But in the midst of a pandemic, you know, we were forced to do this very, very quickly. And in the span of days, we're able to get telemedicine up and running. And and mostly that was because of all the relaxed regulatory requirements that CMS allowed for in the midst of the pandemic. So what aspects were taken into consideration when making the switch to telehealth? You know, at first there was a lot of concern that our patients wouldn't be able to navigate the technological requirements for telehealth visits. And that's something that in the device and EP world, we've heard for years with remote monitoring and other things that we've tried to do for patients. And so I think EP as a service line was really poised to lead the charge on telehealth because we have been incorporating these types of things into patient care for a very long time. And so some of the things that we had to consider were workflows. How do we keep our staff employed? That was a really big need for us. We wanted to be sure that our, all of our clinic staff were kept as whole as possible during this whole thing. Some other aspects were how many patients can you really see virtually? You know, if you don't have the support staff of a front desk person and a, somebody to work them up and a nurse sitting there to help you in clinic, what could that volume really look like? Some other things were provider technological skills, to be very honest with you. I mean, we've got providers from fresh out of fellowship to nearing retirement. And so their ability to navigate those technologies as well was something that we had to consider as we put these processes in place. And so can you kind of walk me through what happens before a patient's first telehealth visit? Yep, absolutely. So for our patients, what we do is we reach out several days ahead of time before the appointment, and we just call and verify with them what their access is to smart technology or to computers. We found that using smart technology has been so much more successful than trying to navigate browsers and pop-up blockers and all of the different things that come with using a computer. And so um, if they've got smart technology, then we're really leaning heavily on that to use those platforms for these visits. So that's done. We also do a dry run with them. And so we have them log on with one of our clinic staff members to really just give them confidence in their ability to navigate this system. A lot of patients we found have been, they really want to get it right for their doctor, right? And so if they know they've got a visit with their doctor, they're logging on 15 minutes ahead of time because they want to be there and ready and waiting and make sure that everything's good. And so we just wanted to give them some confidence around their skills to use this technology. And that's been really empowering for the patients and for our clinic staff to be able to see that change for our patients over time. Also at that visit, we'll go ahead and do their medication reconciliation. And so that piece is already done for the provider before they log on for their actual visit two days later. And then we remind the patient that if they've got a blood pressure cuff at home, if they're able to weigh themselves, if they have an Apple Watch 
or a Cardia Mobile at home, go ahead and send those strips in through the EMR portal so that the provider has those at the time of the visit and be sure that they know what their vital signs were that morning so that at the time of their visit, then that can be reviewed as well. And what type of cases can be seen via telehealth? For EP, you know, Dr. Mattal for a long time has said that EP is the one place where physical exam probably isn't as important. And, and I think that's true. And so for EP, we've been able to see device patients incorporating a remote transmission before their appointment. We've been able to see new consults because a lot of our patients do have access to wearables our cardiomobile devices, or they've worn an event monitor in the past. We've been able to see our AFib clinic patients. You know, we really haven't found patients that we have not been able to care for virtually. And what we've done is try to use this virtual visit as a portal to an in-clinic visit if necessary. So everyone's first step has been a virtual visit. And then that virtual visit will determine if we need to bring them in for an in-clinic visit. But even often acute issues can be handled virtually. And if patients need cardioversions, those can all be scheduled virtually. And then a physical exam can be done the day of the cardioversion whenever that's set up. So we've been able to incorporate this technology for all types of patients, and it's really been successful. How is your practice currently managing elective or emergent EP cases? So our case volumes obviously fell off significantly whenever everything kind of shut down and we hit the brakes in early March. And so we have been doing those emergent and urgent cases as necessary. In North Carolina recently, we've had a real shift, especially in our healthcare system, to trying to open things back up a little bit and seeing how we can do that safely, still protecting patients and still protecting staff members. And a lot of that safety is wrapped around in our ability to test patients. And so Right now, anybody that comes in for any procedure is having to have COVID testing done, either a lab core test, which is a two to three day turnaround for us, or a same day test that can be done in-house. But really, testing has dictated our ability to reopen up our labs for procedures. Can you also tell us about how both the AFib and heart failure clinics were adapted to a virtual model? So, you know, AFib and heart failure are two very niche spaces within the cardiology world. And there was concern that we would not be able to manage these patients virtually. But we've actually had really great success. Even our antiarrhythmic patients, you know, oftentimes, again, a lot of them do have wearable technology. It's not a 12-lead EKG, but it's something. We can verify their medications, ensure they haven't been started on anything by another provider that could interfere with antiarrhythmic drug medications. So there's still a lot that can be done virtually. And you know, lab work certainly can't be, but those patients can be put on a list if they're okay to wait six weeks or so to come back in for lab work. And so that's how we've tried to manage our antiarrhythmic drug patients. Our heart failure team was very concerned about their ability to adequately care for patients virtually, but it's amazing what you can do with a camera, right? And so one of our heart failure physicians, you know, his first visit, he's got a patient on video and he's like, okay, stick your leg up on the table and push in to your ankle and let's see how much swelling you have. And, you know, lean your head back and let's see what your neck veins look like. So even though you can't touch a patient, there's still aspects of the physical exam that are able to be done. And it's allowed our heart failure and our AFib clinic patients to still receive really high quality care, but in a virtual world. Tell me about your revised protocol for patients with cardiac implantable devices who require MRI scanning or cardioversions during this time. 
historically, all of those MRI scans for us have been supported by industry. We did not have the staff in-house to be able to support those. But one of the first people that we kicked out of our hospitals was industry because we appreciate them and all of their work, but also realize that they're in and out of hospitals all over the place. And there's a concern that they could be vectors, you know, for transmission. And so we wanted to limit their exposure to our patients when possible. And so we've leveraged the technology that all of the vendors have. So CareLink Express, Merlin On Demand, Latitude Consult. And what happens now is a patient goes to the MRI suite and that transmission is done. And then the APP on call for the EP team reviews that transmission and will enter an order for how they want the device programmed during the MRI scan. And then we've trained and leveraged our interventional radiology nurses who are all incredibly bright and smart and are always up for a new challenge to reprogram those devices for the MRI scan with the assistance of the in-house EP, APP if needed. And then at the end of the scan, they get another CareLink Express, Merlin On Demand or Latitude Consult transmissions so that we can ensure that all of the device settings are returned to normal. But that's been hugely successful and the radiology nurses have really embrace this as an opportunity because now they're not having to wait for someone to come down to the MRI department so they can proceed with the scan. So we're really empowering them. And when we think about things that interventional radiology nurses do, they're very bright nurses. They do very complicated things. You know, walking out a step-by-step for them is certainly within their wheelhouse and has been really successful with the oversight from the APPs in the hospital. What were some of the main challenges you encountered during this process and what challenges still exist? So I think, you know, some of our main challenges were just this need to pivot so quickly, right? I mean, it's really, it's like turning the Titanic and it's really hard to slow a ship down that is so big. And that's how most of our health systems are. There's just these huge things and, you know, trying to shift how we do things is really difficult. And there's a lot of people and layers of administration that need to be involved in all of those decisions. And so that's been one of our big challenges now today the big challenge is is just this change in information and every day it feels like we get directives on four new ways to do things and and it's just because nobody knows what the right answer is and so trying to learn and figure that out and then with an eye toward the future and how do we continue to incorporate these lessons that we've learned and these processes that we've put into place that better patient care you know i mean we've done more remote monitoring we've got better processes for device interrogations in the hospital now we're able to care for patients in new and different ways and, and really extend our reach and extend our touch and embracing the fact that families are so much more involved and, and all of the benefits of telehealth. And so that's what we're trying to do now is figure out how do we capture all that work that we've done and continue to move that forward as we look to the future. So has this become sort of the new normal for you? How many patients do you now see via telehealth? I think it's a great question. And so we hear new normal a lot. And what does that look like? And, and what is that going to be? And none of us know, right? And, and a lot of it would depend on if CMS will allow us to continue telehealth visits post-pandemic world. And we all hope that they will. Right now, our uh, minimum requirement for the practice is that the provider see 16 patients via telehealth each day. There are several providers who are able to see many more than that. And so in a normal world, our day was 22 patients. And so we're at 16 virtually is the base. But we do have several providers who are seeing in their 20s virtually. And it, it all depends really on the patient mix and if they've done a telehealth visit before. And so if this is their follow-up telehealth, then they're much more comfortable and and the visits go a lot more smoothly. So what helpful tips can you offer? So I think, you know, right now, hopefully everybody's figured out telehealth at least a little bit and have incorporated this in their day-to-day world. But I do think as we look to the future, 
it's going to be incredibly important to figure out again how do we capture all of this great work that we've done all of this innovation and all of these new ways to reach out and touch our patients and just continue to move that forward and so i think that we're probably all kidding ourselves if we think that the hipaa requirements are going to be continuously loosened or you know the cms won't wrap regulations around what we're doing and so just keeping an eye toward the future and working with IT and internal bodies with billing and coding and compliance to make sure that this is a viable option for us as we move forward, I think is a really important part. And then one focus that we're really working on right now is trying to do outreach, you know, reach out to our primary care partners and reach out to our general cardiology partners and be sure they know that we are still here. The AFib clinic is still here. And EP still here and we are able to see these patients virtually and so don't send them to the ER, you know, like let them just jump on a phone call with us and and let us do a virtual visit first. So have there been discussions yet about reopening the practice and what considerations are being taken before reopening again? So everybody wants to reopen. Um, I think every hospital system is losing millions of dollars a month. And so there are huge financial pressures to get back to work. But how do we do that safely? And so for us, I'm sure like everyone else, it's going to be a phased approach. And, and some of the big questions and concerns and logistics that we're trying to work out are how do we safely distance patients? How do we stagger those appointments? How do we keep patients socially distanced while they're in the clinic? Some of the other considerations, as a lot of places have gone to a no visitor policy, as we have for both outpatient and inpatient worlds, is how do you incorporate the family into the visits? And so now when patients come into the office, oftentimes we're FaceTiming or having family members on speakerphone that are in their car to include them in the visit still. So that's from the outpatient side. From the elective procedure side, you know, certainly we can't continue to hold off on AFib ablation patients and patients that need primary prevention ICDs forever. And so as testing capabilities ramp up, then we're going to start to wrap those patients back in and have really tried to assign priority to all of those cases so that we can get the most urgent ones done first. Great. Thanks so much for your time, Amber. Thank you. For more information, please visit eplabdigest.com to read Amber's article in our upcoming June issue. You can also find additional podcasts on our website as well as on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.